Be still and know that God is here. Be still and know that God is here. Be still and know that God is here. In the name of the Creator, Redeemer, and Sustainer. Amen. Pray with me. God of all nations and people, we are grateful for the dreams of freedom, justice, and peace forever spun by your Spirit and focused by prophets of every age. We are grateful that in our time you call all of us to lift up and live by that dream, to embody it in our world by walking the walk, confessing our complicities, braving the work, daring the confrontation, exposing the lies, singing our faith, asking the questions, expanding the compassion, enduring in humility and risking the revolution of love. Keep us faithful to your dream, and for Christ's sake and for ours. Amen. Good morning, my beloved friends. Here we are now halfway through our Lenten journey, and this time we have carved out to look and perhaps even more importantly, listen to the invitation of how we might embrace the Episcopal Churchwide Initiative called Becoming Beloved Community. This framework helps focus our collective hearts, moving us closer to embracing the dream and the work of what it will take to become radically inclusive, intentionally accessible, intergenerational, and multi-ethnic as a gathering of people from all walks of life who come together to be more than we ever could be on our own as we follow the path laid out for us by following Jesus. It's an all-consuming dream and one that I believe in because of all of you and our growing willing, willingness to keep stepping out and learning together as disciples. Discipleship to me means being about engaging the work of justice-making through faith in action, a dedication to personal education and transformation, a growing awareness and compassion for the other, embracing a life of reconciliation and healing, and finding and sharing God's fierce love every day in our lives. Last week, I reminded us of the circuitous route that we travel in this work to become a multi-ethnic justice-seeking group of disciples. It is work and a lifetime practice requiring persistence, humility, courage, and the ability to double back along the way that we have often come upon places before, remembering that each time we are somewhere familiar, we still discover something new about ourselves as we move forward together. For that reason, we think about the image of a labyrinth underscoring the importance of remembering this journey is not linear in nature and never really fully completed. 
the Becoming Beloved Community Initiative divides the labyrinth into four sections to help us travel this journey as we focus our hearts on racial reconciliation. Last week, we began with the telling the truth about our churches and about race. Today, we move on to the next quadrant of the labyrinth, proclaiming the dream of the beloved community. And we pair that idea with the third of our five baptismal promises. Our baptismal question today is, will you proclaim by word and example the good news of God in Christ? And our word for today for the Becoming Beloved Community Initiative is goodness. Today we are encouraged to ask ourselves, how can we publicly acknowledge things done and left undone? What does beloved community look like in this place? What behaviors and commitments will foster reconciliation, justice, and healing? Our gospel text today comes from the gospel according to John. You may remember that in our three-year cycle of assigned readings called the lectionary, Mark has been our main gospel storyteller this year. We'll come back to his narrative and perspective on Palm Sunday, but for the next three weeks, we will hear from the gospel writer of John. So what's the difference? I've described Mark as the just the facts, ma'am, kind of guy. He is direct, without embellishment in most of his narrative. John, on the other hand, is altogether different. If they were here today, we might find Mark as an investig investigative journalist submitting stories fixed on an economy of words, while John would probably be signing up for a virtual open mic night as a poet or a hip-hop artist, keen on painting stunning pictures with words and images and symbols to move and shape our hearts. In fact, I dare say John could care less about empirical data, facts, details, arguments, ethics, parables. None of that really seems to matter to John. The Gospel writer of John seems to be singularly focused on two dominant themes. First, underscoring Jesus' divinity. And second, that we are called to love one another. So as we dip into his world for this next three weeks, we need to keep that perspective in mind and always in the back of our minds. John organizes his gospel around six miraculous signs that Jesus performs over the course of his public ministry. These function like signposts along the path, pointing towards these two primary themes that he wants to emphasize about who Jesus is and what his mission is among us. The first of these signs is when Jesus, encouraged by his mother, surreptitiously changes water into wine at the wedding in Galilee. And then, on the heels of that miracle, we arrive at today's passage. That seems to be important. Today's outburst in the temple is right up front in the chronology that John tells us of the life of Jesus. It's as if he's saying something maybe like this. Story one was epic, but that was just the start. Jesus is turning tables. 
He's here to shock our hearts. Paying attention to disruption, temples can't stay the same. God's love is moving in a totally different game. John wants his listeners to embrace Jesus as God's love incarnate and to commit to loving one another, period, end of story. So for him, for John, not only is there no need for the ancient practice of animal sacrifice, but the act itself is antithetical to this new understanding of God's real presence in the world through Jesus. Keep in mind, the temple had become a marketplace out of necessity. In order to buy the animals for sacrifice, people needed to change their Roman coins into Jewish ones and then purchase the prescribed animals. But with Jesus on the scene, there is no need for any of that, for changing money, for purchasing animals, for making sacrifices. All of it, all of it has been jettisoned by John in his new paradigm of revolutionary love. So how does all of that, the turning over of the tables and the making the mess in the temple, tie into our focus on becoming beloved community and our third baptismal promise? Here's one possibility. It seems to me this story is a bold and direct expression of Jesus's desire to proclaim the dream of beloved community. He walks into this holy place and at great risk to himself, courageously announces that the dwelling place of God's dream of beloved community is not a place where religion should be turned into a commodity, but rather should be a place of power in service of life-giving love for all. And more than just that, Turning the tables was also a sign that God's dwelling place would no longer be limited to residency inside the walls of the temple, or I would say, in any house of worship. John is pulling us into a new understanding of the holy, the sacred, the way this kind of love can take root in our lives and must take root in our lives every day especially today. God dwells in human bodies and human experiences and human communities wherever love is leading people to risk their lives in order to become beloved community. Proclaiming the dream of beloved community is more than a nice phrase. It requires a commitment, a commitment of us all to stay focused on dismantling any and all ways and any and all places that we, where we have built up temples or religious patterns or practices that forget what John wants us to remember. God is love made manifest through Jesus. And here we are being called to love one another. The work of dismantling racism is indeed the way of the cross. And it's the way and the work that we have to do this season, my friends. Today, I want to introduce us to another inspiring voice and spirit to help us along this journey to envision and proclaim the dream of beloved community. Named one of 15 faith leaders to watch by the Center for American Progress, the Reverend Jennifer Bailey 
is an ordained minister in the African Methodist Episcopal Church, the first historically black Protestant church in the world, and an emerging national leader in the multi-faith movement for justice. She is the founder and executive director of the Faith Matters Network, a womanist-led organization equipping community organizers, faith leaders, and activists with resources for connection, spiritual sustainability, and accompaniment. I was also delighted to learn this week, Jennifer is also one of the co-founders of the People's Supper, a program I've been interested in bringing to Trinity since 2017. It is designed to bring people of all sorts of faiths or no faiths together to engage constructively on issues affecting our communities. Over the past four years, the program has hosted 1,400 suppers in 121 communities nationwide. I would love to explore this way of gathering in our wider Toledo community as well. But for today, today I want us to listen to Jennifer's message and hear what she has to say about the idols or perhaps some of the practices in the temples of our own lives and especially what she has to say about the theology of white Christian supremacy. I'm an ordained elder in the African Methodist Episcopal Church, which is the oldest historically black denomination in the world. It was founded in Philadelphia in 1787 um, when, you know, some interesting things were happening in Philadelphia around that time with the Constitution being <laughs> written. Um, but it was at St. George's Methodist Episcopal Church that our founder, Richard Allen, um, began a protest against racial injustice, right? Um, black folks weren't allowed to kneel at the altar at the sacred moment of prayer. They were ripped from their knees. Instead of taking that abuse, they marched out and started a movement that would become known as the Black Church. And so I, I share that story in part because as we think about the role of religious communities and creating a world in which we all can see one another, can identify the, the challenge right, of, of race in our country. It begins by understanding that this question of, of white supremacy, which I wouldn't call an ideology, I'd actually call it a theology, right, is deeply rooted and connected to our own understandings of Christian supremacy, and in particular white Christian supremacy. Since the, the foundation of colonial days, the, the white church has been complicit and our understandings and justifications for slavery. There, from the beginning of colonial times, there was a cognitive dissonance about whether or not, you know, white planters should baptize slaves. And because that act of baptism means you are then within the community of believers, it means that you are free in Christ, right? And so what you see early on is this justification or the emergence of pro-slavery Christianity that pulls from biblical texts to justify the perpetual servitude of black-bodied people. You know, this is the question of our roots. And part of 
getting to the root of many of the challenges that continue to, to fray the fabric of our society is getting really real about the truth. It's speaking of the truth about our history and our stories, the truth about white supremacy, right? White supremacy very much to me is, is a God. The God of white supremacy is real. It is something that we are all indoctrinated in to worship. That whiteness, this ideal of whiteness, is that which is to be aspired to, that which is holy. And the God of white supremacy only survives on the blood and bodies of poor black and brown people. It's what justified slavery. It today is what justifies modern day slavery, whether we're talking about the abuse of migrant laborers, whether we're talking about literal slavery, people coming to this country and being held as slaves to work at bare minimum wages. It's an idol, this idol of whiteness and superiority entangled together. And I think that one of the great lies about white supremacy, this belief that people who are fair-complected are somehow better than others, one of the great lies is that it benefits any of us. All of us are hurt right. by the logic of white supremacy. Sometimes resurrection can be found in the small moments, and that's what gives me hope. Because as I think about you know, the narrative of Holy Week, resurrection only happens after Holy Saturday, a moment of deep silence. When Jesus is dead, he's dead. And the women of Jerusalem keep at work. And there is something in that message of keeping at work even through the silence to get to those small moments of resurrection that I find deeply profound. We can start fresh, I believe that. But that healing is only gonna happen if we center the voices of those who've been shut out, the voices of trans women of color, the voices of the undocumented immigrant, the voices of the queer child who is HIV positive and living on the streets because their parents kicked them out. Those are the stories of salvation that I most want to hear because those are the stories that are going to stretch my imagination about who God is and help me understand where it is that we need to go so that we can set the table properly. It's a lot to take in. I have listened to this multiple times this week, and I am still haunted by her explanation of the history and reality of the theology of white Christian supremacy. For me, she has walked right into the temple of my own ignorance and upsetting a few of the tables and practices I have been attending to through my unearned white privilege. 
It is also a reminder of how important our work and witness in this place can be, not only for us, but perhaps even more importantly, in and for the world around us. Proclaiming the dream of beloved community is all about this. It is about claiming the work of dismantling the ways we have been complicit in the patterns and practices of the church over the past 400 years. It is about claiming God's goodness in our lives, pulling and shaping, forgiving and healing and imploring us to stretch ourselves. So as we move further in our journey together towards becoming beloved community, my prayer is that we stay committed to finding ways to keep untangling the lie and logic of white supremacy as it sneaks into the cracks of our lives. So truly, stay with me, my friends, and let's stay the course. May we find ways to center the voices of those who have been shut out, to discover the stories of salvation that we need to hear, to stretch our imaginations about who God is, helping us understand where we need to go next as we dream and work to realize God's beloved community. May it be so.